Hey everyone, welcome back to Here Apologetics. Super pumped to join us today to have Tyler Vela, the free thinker. We're talking about like God and Calvinism and the problem of evil and hell and all kinds of um, fun and challenging topics. So Tyler, what's up, man? Thanks for joining me. Not much. Thanks for having me back on. I appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and obviously we've sent messages back and forth. And I'm like, oh, it's just time to have a conversation. So um, in case people don't know who you are, like talk a little bit about like who you are and what you do and yeah, things like that. Yeah, so uh, I host the Freethinker podcast uh, blog and YouTube channel. Um, so dedicated to, uh, originally it was <clears throat> apologetics dealing with naturalism and unbelief. I still do that uh, about half the time. Uh, and then the rest of it has really geared towards, as my studies have progressed into more um, in-house debates about systematic theology and biblical theology, um, and coming from a reform perspective since I'm a reform Presbyterian. So uh, I have the YouTube channel, podcast, and uh, blog, and then the Facebook group if anyone wants to come and join the discussion. And then I also co-host, I'm actually recording uh, at, shortly after this, I co-host uh, an admin, a Facebook uh, group called The Sage Stage. Uh, and we have a YouTube channel that we've, I can't say we've just started it. We've been doing it for a long time, but I think we're only like five episodes in. Um, mm -hmm. That's geared towards, it's not a debate between different views. It's really geared towards um, stating and understanding uh, the different, uh, different positions as well as kind of the axioms or the assumptions or the, the reasons why they might come to hold the beliefs that they hold. So it's, it's geared towards sage stage, towards understanding opposing views. Mm. Well, right on. That's super cool, man. Um, so I don't know exactly how to get things rolling here, but thinking about like, um, like Calvinism, the problem of evil, like in a broad stroke, like um, how do you make sense of like evil and like hell and all the like scary things that makes Christians want to go hide in the corner? Um, like how do you make sense of these things under like a Calvinistic like view of things? Yeah, uh, I don't know if this sounds overly dismissive. Um, I don't mean it to be. Um, I as, uh, as a as a reformed uh, Christian as a, as a Calvinist. I just don't find the problems of evil, a problem of evil, problem of suffering, um, uh, hell, those ones. I don't find them theologically challenging or, or philosophically challenging um, for, for quite a few different reasons. Um, but I think the the appeal to them and the challenge of them um, is that they are they are kind of existentially challenging. Um, they are they're emotionally challenging. But but if you if you hold the position that God decrees whatsoever comes to fashion, that he does so for his good and righteous uh, plans and purposes, um, the you know problem of evil and suffering kind of goes away. Um, it's 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 not it, it doesn't pose as much of a challenge anymore because any attempt to push the challenge is going to basically say, well, if we assume Calvinism is false, then, this thing follows, but I'm just say, okay, well, then that doesn't become a, a special challenge for Calvinism. Um, and you need to now give me independent reason to think that why that assumption is true. Uh, mm -hmm. before that, that, that before that really becomes a challenge for me. Um, and I think, uh, I, I brought this up in, uh, for those uh, who, who don't know me or haven't seen it, I brought this up in my opening debate or opening, um, remarks in my debate with Dan Chapa on libertarian freedom is that um, we have biblical examples where we know God decreed, caused, brought about evil actions, namely the most evil action to ever occur in human history, which was the crucifixion of the, uh, of the perfect son of God, right? The, mm -hmm. Arguably the most evil action to ever happen 
in all uh, of, uh, of God's creation. And we're expressly told that it was by God's ordination, his predeterminate plan, his, his pra-orizo, his foreordination. And in Acts 4, it's, it's expressly said that it's by his hand, by God's hand that it's brought about. So whatever argument that someone has to make, if, it, if it's simply relying on this assumption that, well, if God causes evil or brings about evil or, or, or is somehow involved in the, in the actualization of evil, then that's a big problem. I'm just going to say, well, I, like, then that's a problem for the Bible then at that point. And, and, I, and I'm just not going to try to distance God from evil further than God himself is comfortable distancing himself from evil. Um, so, yeah. Mm. So you have this idea of like um, saying like, like in your view, things like God's going to decree all things um, mm -hmm. and it's all for like his righteous plans and purposes. So like, boom, like if this view, if that view of things is true, then like there really is no problem of evil. Like it's all going to work out. Yeah. Yeah. And it doesn't, it doesn't mean like, like I said, I mean, there's the existential problem. It doesn't mean that we don't suffer with the problem of why am I suffering this specific evil? Why is that person? Why is that child suffering from leukemia? Why is, why did that, you know, uh, uh, you know, why, why did that person murder my loved one? Right. All those kinds of things. Right. Mm -hmm. It's just that, um, the reasons for why God would allow decree, whatever it is, are the same types of things, the same types of explanations, the same morally sufficient reasons, soul building, free will, God, you know, his own glorification, right? Whatever it is that even non-Calvinists would give, give when they're trying to respond to say natural problems of evil, right? So mm -hmm. again, why is this child, why, why, why did that child get leukemia? may not be a direct result of anyone's sin or for free will or anything like that. But for some reason, and under God's providence, this, this was brought about, right? So, so any Christian that, that, that is worth their salt is going to have to be able to deal with those types of challenges. And the Calvinist is just going to say, well, I mean, all the answers that, that, that non-Calvinists would give in those types of non-moral issues, those natural evils, we just think are also applicable in moral evils and, and God has his own righteous, holy purposes and plans. And, you know, it, 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 you know, all things work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose and all those, all those types of things. And then that's just a sufficient explanation for it. Mm -hmm. So I'm just thinking about where we should take this, but thinking about like um, the different like account of things. So like, it makes sense to me thinking about how like you have your ideas, like you have your like kind of like theological, um, underpinning that's going to kind of like explain all the evil so that makes sense so like then like how does that like impact you like addressing like specific challenges you talked about like the cases of like someone like a child having leukemia like do you think you can point to like specific like um the odysseys or defenses or whatever say like hey this is probably what's going on here or are you just gonna take more of this broad approach of saying like hey um calvinism is true and because of this um we know that there's some reason even if we may not know like the exact answer of what's going on here yeah, it's a good question. Um, I think in some cases we can try to prayerfully understand things. Um, <clears throat> however, I think generally, uh, I, I think, you know, the, the divine purposes behind things are, are just at some point, you know, inscrutable. There, there's, just, there's just a certain level where um, 
uh, God is God and we're not, and we're not, and we're not going to know those things. And I, and I'm not trying to say that I'm going to try to defend my, defend my position by appeal to mystery. Right. So, so it, it, if Calvinism is true, then, the, then the argument, the logic arguments themselves are indefeasible. Right. So this then comes to the pastoral question of, okay, but how do you actually kind of handle, you know, when, when someone is suffering and, and what do we do there, there, there's actually uh, there's a very, very good children's book that I recommend for everyone to read. Um, it's called the moon is always round. I'm not going to give away the, the the plot of the story, but like, it's one of those things where it's like, I'm not crying. You're crying. Shut up. Like it's, <laughs> it's, it's really, really good even as a, as a kid story. But the, the theme of it is that the moon is always round, even when you can't see it all. Right. So even when it's a sliver, even when it's a half moon, even when, you know, three quarter moon, the moon's always round, whether or not it's obscured by shadow or not. Right. And the takeaway from the book, again, I'm not telling the plot, but the, the takeaway of the theme of the book is that God is always good. Even if you can't see it all, even if you can't see the reasons behind it all, just like the moon is always round, God is always good. Um, so no matter, no matter what we're going through, no matter what the challenges are, and the, 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 you know, again, the book will make you like cry. If you, if you have, if, if you don't cry, you don't have a heart, I think. <laughs> um, but, uh, it, it, it's this idea of that, even if you can't see it all, even if you don't know the reasons, even if it's horrific, God is always good. The moon is always round. Um, mm -hmm. and that, there, and that there's, there's comfort in that. And I think that is actually Paul's, I, I think that's in line with Paul's point in Romans eight, where he walks through and he says, look, what, you know, what can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus shall, you know, death or life or height or depth or anything else in all of creation, right? He goes to that whole list. I, I think the idea is, look, even if you have all these things going on, you know, if, if you're found in Christ, God, God is always good, no matter what. Nothing can separate you from that. You can know that God is always good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So one of the things I wonder then is like, what's going to make this view attractive? So one of the things I've been thinking about is like, um, so like, why should we prefer? Like, I think I know your answer. If you say because scripture clearly teaches it, and if that's it, then great. <laughs> I answered my own question. Um, but I think it's helpful for the audience. Like, um, some some people may wonder, like, hey, like why should I prefer this view, Tyler, of things that you're kind of selling when I could like maybe adhere to another view um, where I could try to like maybe like explain these things and try to really go like, I don't want to say deeper because then it makes it sound like your view is like anti-intellectual, which I know it's not at all. Um, but like, you know, like be able to maybe like say like, hey, and like press further and like not like be satisfied with like mysteries and things like this. Like why should we prefer your view? Um, and like, why is it attractive over the other, other views? Yeah. Yeah. Uh <clears throat> Again, I do think it's biblical. I think it's exegetically the most uh, the most uh, preferable position. Mm -hmm. But but I'll say but I'll say this, um, you know, because I, I don't I don't generally appeal to mystery to defend the view, right? I, I think we have mm -hmm. lots of good reasons to to believe it. it. It's it's when you start probing into the well, is there a specific reason why God would allow you know A, B, and C? I don't think any view can say that what the mind of God is for any specific. Uh, you know, we're, we're all going to fall back on mystery at some point. Just at, at the end of the day, we're going to say, well, you know, God is good. There, there's kind of a cheeky answer I have to it. Um, and that is that there's a certain caricature of Calvinism where it's like, well, are you know, are you are you saying that God is the one that like made, you know, the murderer murder someone? Right. Because for a lot of people, they, they hear decree and they think that it means that God is like puppet and causing all that kind of stuff. Not only is that not our view. Mm -hmm. um and we ha again we have biblical examples of where god does decree bring about cause i go through a whole list of of different examples where uh, god god seems to be to take credit for 
evil things, sinful things that get brought about. I mean, Revelation 17, 17, where it talks about the kings who give over their kingdoms to the, to the Antichrist, right? It directly says, because God put it in their heart to do so. Right. So, you know, there, there, there are those types of those types of passages that if you have this kind of principled objection that it just it feels icky if God is too close to, to sin that way. I'm just going to say, well, you just haven't wrestled adequately with the with the full scope of Scripture. But again, my kind of cheeky answer is to say, but but think about the other side. Right. This is where I find the free will kind of defenses to be unsatisfactory. Right. Mm -hmm. So a murderer gets away with murder, right? Why? Well, I mean, the typical response of, oh, well, because, you know, there, you know, there has to be free will and all that kind of stuff. It's like, okay, but is that, is that a satisfactory answer, right? If, if I, if I am sitting there and I'm watching my son get murdered by somebody else, am I going to be like, oh, well, free will is of such a good that I can't stop that instance of evil. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, I, I like, I, I like, if we're going to kind of go at this humanistic level, no, I would absolutely intervene and, and stop that thing from happening. And I think most people think that if I didn't do that, but I could do that, that I would somehow be morally culpable for it. Right. So I think these types of thought experiments kind of work in the other direction, actually more strongly. And when you start getting into the philosophy of, uh, of freedom, um, there's the difference between freedom of uh, freedom of the will and and kind of power of outcome or, or power of actualization, right? So God can protect the free choice of the murderer to murder, but it doesn't mean that he has to actually allow that person to accomplish the outcome, right? So in the problem of suffering, say say someone shoots a bullet at someone, they, they could freely choose to squeeze the bullet, right? They're they're Freedom has been entirely preserved, but how many times just as the natural course of events as a gun jam or do they miss or, you know, something like that. God could do that a hundred percent of the time such that even though their freedom is preserved, the evil outcome doesn't come about. So the suffering doesn't happen. Right. So I just find those types of free will theodicies to just be wildly unconvincing for me. Um, and I, and I'm, and I think at that point you're still stuck saying, I'm okay, well, God preserved the freedom and the outcome happened. They murdered, right. You know, it, I ask any of my other non-Calvinists, well, why is that? And they go to morally sufficient reasons. And I'm going to say, okay, so then freedom didn't actually have the cash value in answering the real problem. You had to go to these other morally sufficient reasons. Anyways, as a Calvinist, I'm just going to go there first. Mm -hmm. Right. So, um, so I, you know, I find it more kind of elegant in that sense, um, kind of in, in, in the elegance in the, in the simplistic type of sense where I just, I, I can skip all the stuff that actually doesn't do any of the work anyways and go right to the, to the, to the same, the, you know, the same answers, but I can do it in a way that I think is biblically consistent. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. So how much, I'm wondering then, like how much mystery is there, do you think with the problem of evil, like from a Calvinistic view, like, do you think we can have like some answers can we have like few like 50 percent like what yeah. exactly like how much um like how many answers do we have like looking at like the calvinistic side of things answering like evil? yeah uh it depends on what you mean right it depends on what mm -hmm. level of explanation you mean right i, I yeah i think we have a hundred percent of the answer for why there is evil and suffering right it kind of in the abstract so we have that kind of like that meta answer for it i think that just is the biblical that's just the biblical answer for it right um when when you start getting into 
again, the specific, why did this specific thing happen? Um, I, I don't, I don't know if there's, a, I don't know if there's a, if there's a count. I mean, so, sometimes, um, you know, there, we, you know, I, I'm, I'm older than I look, but as you, as you live enough of your life, um, you kind of start to realize that the, the suffering that you go through, the sins that you, that you commit, um, they're going to come back in your life again. Mm -hmm. And they either come back in your life because you haven't learned your lesson and you're going to commit the sin again. You need to learn your lesson <laughs> and you haven't, you haven't adequately uh, overcome that, or they're going to come back in your life because that you have overly come that and God turns that into a ministry for you. Mm -hmm. But I've just, I've just found whatever, whatever those things are, it's going to come back into my life again and again and again, either until I learn it or until it becomes a, a ministry. And I think that sometimes that's an answer to, to why certain evils and, and, and suffering happens. Sometimes, you know, we, we can look back and we can see how we grew out of it. You can kind of see some soul building in there. You can kind of, you can see some of the outcomes. Sometimes we don't. Sometimes we, I don't think we will know this side of eternity why certain things happened. And sometimes, you know, what's that song? You know, you're so vain. You, you, you probably think the song is about you. Sometimes our sufferings may actually, they, they may have a soul building benefit, but it may not be for us. Um, mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, I, I, I don't think we always know those types of things. Mm. So maybe let's dive into like a specific example, which could help us. So like, how do you make sense of like, like one of the struggles I've had, I know I've talked about with you about this before is like Calvinism, like understanding like hell. Um, so we think about the idea of like um, hell being like eternal conscious torment, where like someone's going to like live um, consciously forever in hell. Um, and we think about that person and then this idea of like, like giving Calvinism, like it seems like if there's a perfectly good God, how could they ever like, um, put that on someone? Cause it's not just like, it's, oh, it's their free choice or, oh, um, something along those lines, but it's like, oh, that's just what God wanted for that person was to suffer, um, eternally in hell. So there's a lot there, but like, how do you like make sense of that from like a Calvinistic like view of things, Tyler? Yeah. So, uh, so I go back and I, and I, and I push hard on the, the creator creature distinction, right? Mm -hmm. So God is creator, we are not. Um, that's not a hollow category, right? For for centuries, and it's kind of fallen out in some sort, you know, in some ways. But we used to have the saying of "Who are you to play God?" Right? And the idea was we commonly recognized that while we don't have that right, God does have that right. That is God's prerogative to decide when and how we die and what our destinies are. Um, that, that just, that just was something that was reserved to God and not to, not to man. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, I, I think that understand that creator creature distinction is important. I think understanding that the biblical passages dealing with this, uh, are important, are important. You know, you could look to Romans nine where it talks about the potter, uh, has, has the rights over the clay. This is the same lump of clay, um, to, to make some for honorable use and some for dishonorable use. Um, you know, some, some, for, some are objects of mercy and some are objects of wrath. It's, it's expressly says that's why he created them. That was their purpose. And he, and he asked, well, why is that the case? And it says, well, what if, what if he did it to make his mercy all the more known to his objects of mercy, right? So, um, you know, there, there are expressed biblical passages that deal with this. The other thing is, and it kind of, again, it's kind of one of those cheeky, well, let's flip it upside down and think about it the other way. And I typically go to the book of Job because I think Job is a really good example of this creator creature distinction where God does all kinds of things that if we as humans did it, it'd be all kinds of bad, 
right? Mm-hmm. So, so think of, think of the story of Job, where 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 Satan, right? It also th- kind of throws in the question that cliche of God, can God stay in the presence of evil? I don't know. The accuser, Satan, can come stand before before God and do just fine. Um, but th- there, there's there, you know, Satan comes and God and, and God brings it up. God's like, hey, where have you been? And he's like, oh, you know, I've been walking back and forth. And he says, have you considered my servant Job? Right? Like, like, what do you think? What do you think of that guy? And and Satan basically says, well, I mean. The only reason he loves you is because you protect him. And God says, well, you know, do whatever you want to him. I won't protect him anymore. And he basically, you know, Satan kills his entire family, kills all of his servants, takes a bunch of his wealth, comes back. And and God says, hey, you know, have you considered my servant Job? And Satan's like, yeah, but, you know, you won't let me harm his body. And so and God says, "Okay, go go harm his body. (laughs) Go do whatever you want. He gives him boils and all kinds. of. And at the very end of the story, uh. When, when God blesses him, it says that, that God blesses him, uh, you know, having done all the calamity that God had brought into his life. Like God takes credit for all the bad that had come into Job's life, including Satan killing his family, taking all his wealth, giving him all that kind of stuff. Now, I, I say that because think about what God did in that. And then think about if, if, I, if I knew my neighbor was a serial killer and I went to him and I said, hey, have you, have you, have you thought about my oldest son? And he says, oh, well, you know, I haven't done anything to him because, you know, you protect him. And I say, oh, okay, tonight I'm not going to be there. Do whatever you want because, you know, I just don't hurt his body, but do whatever you want. And so he comes in and he kills all of his brothers and sisters and he kills all his friends and he burns the house down and all this kind of stuff. And the next day I see him and I'm like, hey, what happened to my oldest son? He's like, oh, well, you know, I, I, I couldn't I couldn't actually touch him. So, you know, I did the worst I could. And I say, oh, well, I'll, I'll be gone again tonight. So do whatever you want. And then he can come in and he can actually hurt, you know, you can't kill him but he can, you know, hurt my sons. But we'd be horrified at that, just horrified, right? But that's the story of Job. So there's there's a certain sense where I'm going to say whatever concept we have of God, whatever it is, you know, there's a certain sense where where we're very post-enlightenment humanistic. And we think that in order for God to be holy, righteous, and just— he has to be a respecter of persons and he has to, he has to treat us like the special snowflakes that we are. And because we're made in the image of God, we have so much value that even God has to, has to look at us. And, and, and if somehow, if, you know, if God judges us or creates, you know, the reprobate or something like that, somehow that means God isn't loving or just or kind or all that kind of stuff. And again, I'm just going to go back and say, you just then aren't wrestling with the scriptures itself because that's just not the picture that we get in the scriptures. I think God is more loving than we can ever fathom, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's the way that we would think of it as ourselves. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Thanks for that. Tyler. It's super great. So one thing I want to like come back to is at the beginning and I, I wrote this down, like I put a big box around it. Um, you talked about like using like the creator creature distinction. They kind of like flesh out the idea of like, yeah, we aren't going to really know everything. We can have an idea and we can look at Job and we can have some sort of explanation, but we can't like know the whole story. And one thing I wonder is like, couldn't someone who, um, and I don't really know where I land on the scheme of things. I mean, I'm not a Calvinist, but I don't really like, I'm not like, oh, team Molinism with William Lane Craig or, oh, I mean, I'm not an open theist either, but like, I don't, I don't know where I land, but, but like, couldn't someone else, like, when looking at, like, a mystery, say you're discussing, with, like, a Molinist, the grounding problem, say, like, hey, Tyler, there's this this thing called the creator-creature distinction where we just – there's just some things we can't know. Um, like, to me, like, it seems like that's, like, a philosophical, like um, – does that shut conversations down? Like, can't just anyone pull that card then? If you're going to pull it here, like, couldn't someone else pull it at another mystery? Like, how do you make sense of that? 
Yeah, so so I don't think that the creator-creature distinction solves things that are logical dilemmas. Mm -hmm. Right. So if you're talking about the grounding objection, right, you're, you're talking about you're talking about metaphysics, right? You're talking about the ontological basis on which God can know something or if he knows something. Right. So so you're 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 dealing with a logical argument. This is a question of how can God be good if he does something? Right. Mm -hmm. And I'm just going to say, well, God can be good because God is goodness. God is right. Whatever God does is holy, righteous and just who. Who are we to stand before God and and say why have you made me this way, um, right? Th this this kind of is the 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 question of, you know that Paul answers in Romans nine, where you know he, he says you know who are you a man to answer back to God? Shall the you know the clay say to the potter why have you made me this way? Um, and and I find that it's interesting that that comes on the tail end of he saying you know so what will you say then? Um, how, how can God find us at will for who can, or how can God find us at fault for who can resist His will? Right? It's that very objection of, you know, if, if God's determined everything, if, if everything is happening by God's will, then how can God find us at fault for our bad, for our bad actions? And Paul expressly uses effectively a creator, creator creature distinction where he says, who are you to talk back to God? God, God can do whatever he wants with the clay. God's God. We're not. Mm -hmm. uh, now that doesn't mean that we're like, oh, well, God does evil things and that's fine. Right. We would just say that whatever God does is righteous. It's not God does evil things and it's okay for God to do evil things, right? That would just be a category mistake, right? It's it's whatever God does is righteous so by, by virtue of it being done by God. So we can't look at whatever God does and say, well, that, that would be unjust. But that means that an objection to Calvinism saying, well, if God did that, he would be unjust. There's a built-in assumption in there that God could do something that is unjust. And I'm going to say, well, no, if we, if we have reason to believe that that's what God did, then that's what God did. And we, we, we're not in a, we don't get to stand in a position to judge God. That's not the same thing as say the Molinist coming along and saying, oh, well, God can, God, God, uh, we don't, we don't need grounding. God has the simple foreknowledge creator creature distinction, right? Because, because mm -hmm. we're going to push back and say, okay, but like that, I can appeal to God's nature as, as, as God is the good. He's not a subject. He, he doesn't have passions, right? He's not passionate. He's not subject to goodness. There's not this exterior thing to him. Um, and so God is good, right? But you're talking about knowledge of the, of the creation. That is an external thing. So how is it that God has knowledge of this external reality that he creates? There has to be some type of grounding to God's knowledge about this external thing, right? So, so you can't just appeal to creator-creature distinction because it, it doesn't resolve it. It doesn't it resolve that kind of ontological distinction between those two things. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you're going to draw a distinction um, where it's not a free-for-all and then we can pull out that card, but saying like, hey, when we're dealing with like logical problems, then you can't really pull that card. Whereas we're looking at more like kind of like mysteries almost or like more like theological questions, then it's more like acceptable to use the card? Um, more, um, more when it has to do with, uh, we, we see it when we say, okay, b basically it's <laughs> if God was a man, then he would be bad, right? Mm -hmm. it, it, it's it's the, the creator-creature distinction is, is supposed to, it, it, what it does is it shows, look, you can't make these arguments by analogy that, that, that only work 
if God was ever so human, mm -hmm. right? Ever so much of a, of a, of a creature, right? So, um, you know, it, it, analogies that, that make God, you know, time bound, for example, fail the creator creature distinction because God just isn't time bound. God's timeless. That's, that's what he is by nature. Um, or, or questions, um, you know, uh, que questions about, um, it, if God can do certain things, um, well, that, that just fails the creator creature distinction. God, God, God's omnipotent. God, God has, has no limits out, outside of himself. God can do anything that that's logically possible and, and logically possible is constrained by his own nature because God is the ground of, of, of logic. So it, it's, it's, it's a way to, to try to highlight where an analogy has gone off the rails because the analogy itself is thinking in, in, in ever so human terms. Mm -hmm. Rather than saying, okay, well, let's put God in the right place and then think about his relationship to evil. It says, well, evil is this thing. And if God does this, then he'd be evil. But that analogy doesn't work because they brought God from creator to a moral subject because that's what creatures are. Well, that analogy doesn't work just because it, it fails to make the creator creature distinction. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think that... Um... Sorry, I got a call. Um, but yeah, I think that does make sense. Um, but then again, so here's what I'm wondering. Like, couldn't you, like, say I wanted to argue that, like, yeah, Calvinism and, like, the doctrine of hell are just, like, incompatible. Like, I could cook up some premises with a conclusion mm -hmm. that would lead to, like, um, them being incompatible. Um, there's my logical argument. So then could you not use the creator-creature creator, creator distinction? Not, like, how, would you have to deny a premise? Is that how you see things? Yeah, yeah. Well, it, dep it depends on what you, I mean, I have to see what your argument is, right? So mm -hmm. if you're making a logical, if you, if you make a logical argument, right? Mm -hmm. I, I may be able, I may attack the validity of it. I may attack the truth of some premise. Or if your argument relies on, for example, God being a moral subject rather than the, the ground of all being, right? Then I might say, well, your argument only follows because you've removed God from the creator position and put him in a creature position, right? So I just, I reject whatever premise it is because you, you've made that maneuver, right? So I could interact with the argument in, in a couple of different ways. Typically, I find that the creator-creature distinction comes about when, specifically in, in these types of arguments, when God is made as a subject of something else, right? He is, somehow God is made subject to morality laws of nature contingency right somehow god has made this this subject to other to other powers and constraints outside of himself that's typically when we're going to see this creator creature distinction fail because you've just moved him from the transcendent position to a creaturely position mm -hmm. so it depends on what your argument is against you know reformed theology and hell right yeah so it, it may commit that. It may not. It may fail for other reasons. It may not fail. You may you may have a, you know a bang up argument that that proves that reformed theology and and hell are incompatible <laughs> somehow, right? So there you go. Um, Five hundred years later, it's all it's you know, all it's, over. So it's it's possible you could you could have the death now. Um, but yeah. So so but if if the argument does make that type of move where it downgrades God from creature to, uh, from creator to creature and makes him a subject, then yes, mm -hmm. that's gonna that's gonna be a problem. Yeah. Well, I think this has been helpful, Tyler, just looking at, like, the dialectic of, like, saying, like, um, like whatever, like, um, per whatever person's going to say, like, whether it's, like, hell or human freedom or the problem of evil, like, whatever, um, saying is like, incompatible with Calvinism, like, I can kind of see, like, the moves you're going to make in of saying, like, hey, um, what exactly are we dealing with here? 
um, looking at like where are we starting, like what's our foundation and things like that. So, I mean, I feel like we've covered a lot of ground and it may not be super helpful to go like go into specific cases. Cause I feel like we kind of covered like a like, Calvinistic like response. So yeah. Anything else you want to cover here? Um, well, I, I think you had mentioned that you uh, previously we had, we had wanted to talk about um, uh, determinism specifically and like robots uh, and doesn't make it robots. I remember we had a, we had a couple interactions. About oh, that. Yeah. This is something I've been moving away from too. Like you know, like you could talk about the idea, like you know, Frank Turks, like you're all just like moist robots, like under yeah. determinism. Um, and like I like I've been seeing like compatibilism is something that's like possible. I don't know. I I haven't thought about it a lot recently. Um, I mean, yeah, we could talk about it. I don't. What? Why is the, here? Let's just do this. Why is the view that, like under Calvinism, where we're all just like robots that have no control of doing anything, and we're just purposeless, and we're just like you know, like little figurines? Like, why is that view false? Yeah. So, so that view comes from um, an assumption of incompatibilism, right? So, incompatibilism is the view that determinism qua determinism, any type of determinism, it doesn't matter the mechanisms, the means, it doesn't matter what type of determinism, if something is determined, it just necessarily follows definitionally that someone is not free, right? In what, in what they're due. And so therefore they're not morally responsible for their actions. They're going to say it's in principle, incompatible, those two things. The compatibilist is going to say, well, well, there's a couple different types of compatibilists, but generally we're going to come along and say, well, it's just not clear or obvious, or we think there's reason not to think that those two things are incompatible. Something could be determined and the agent could be free, right? They, they could be, they could have the type of freedom that makes them morally responsible, right? It might not be libertarian freedom, but it's freedom that's necessary for responsibility. And it's not entirely clear how those two things are somehow, you know, in principle contradictory with each other. Um, so what happens is when people come and say, oh, well, Calvinism, you know, says we're robots or they deny free will. What, the, what that's actually doing is they say they, they, we hear Calvinists saying determinism, right? Mm -hmm. On our view, if something is determined, they're robots. We're now going to impose that back on Calvinism and say, well, since Calvinism says that there's determined, then they say that it's robots, Right. But notice the maneuver there, right? The maneuver has to be, we're going to say what Calvinism is in, in, as an internal critique. We're going to shift to an external and assume incompatibilism. And then we're going to import that back into the argument, right? That's an invalid dialectic, right? That's moving back and forth from an internal critique to an external critique, back to an internal critique. Can't, you can't validly make that argument. Mm -hmm. right? Because given compatibilism, if compatibilism is true, that there is no in-principle contradiction, then if something is determined, it's not necessarily the case that it's that it's not free. It might not be free. There are types of ways that you can determine things such that the agent isn't free, but that's not necessarily the case, right? Mm -hmm. There there seem to be ways that things can be determined, and you can have responsible parties that are you know that, that are that are free and, and responsible. So so the 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 Calvinist and, and by the way, this isn't a Calvinist thing, right? This is the the majority of philosophers <laughs> hold this view. And, and, and in all in, in all the relevant data, this is actually is in in line with. You'll hear a lot of people say the folk view is the libertarian view. The studies just don't show that. The science just doesn't show that. That is just flat out not the case. Um, I, mm -hmm. I just recently did an episode going through all this, um, but like the the, the compatibilist view seems to be in line with with part of the folk view because the folk view is complicated. Um, 
but when you're dealing with when you're dealing with with Calvinism, we're compatibilists, right? So if something is determined, we can still be free and responsible. We're not we're not robots. Why? Because we're still doing the things we want to do. We we're still the source of our decisions. We're still the ones that are deciding what we want to do. We're still the agent. We still have guidance control over our decisions. We're still the ones exercising our faculties. We're still the ones that are reasons responsive, right? All those types of things. Just because the outcome is determined doesn't mean that somehow we lose all of those all of those features of what it takes to be free and responsible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's great. I don't have too much to add. I mean, like the big mystery is like, do you have to have like freedom um, to have responsibility for your actions? And that could be a whole like 18 hour conversation. So yeah, um, well, and at, and at that, I would say that at a bare minimum, unless you're a free will skeptic, like unless you're like a paraboom or something like that, most compatibilists are going to say, uh, well, I mean, most philosophers, even incompatibles, pretty much all compatibilists are going to say freedom, whatever it means, right? What, whatever that, whatever it means to be free, whatever conditions have to be met to be free, freedom just is the control condition that's needed to be responsible. So mm -hmm. if you're responsible, you have some type of significant freedom and the debate really is over what constitutes that freedom. What what has to be actual so that you've met that condition for, for your control condition for responsibility. Yeah. That makes sense to me to say like that, like to have responsibilities, to have control over your actions. Um, but then like, doesn't Calvinism, like, doesn't that take control, that control away from you and to God? Like if God sovereignly decrees all things, like how do you make sense of that? Because we, we would differentiate between um, God determining uh, and God, well, and God controlling in the it, it, difference between God controlling the ultimate sense and difference controlling in the efficient sense, right? God is not the efficient cause for me doing what I do, right? So um, there, there's lots of lots of examples. People give you know storybook examples, and they say, oh well, you know, J.R.R. Tolkien determined that Frodo would throw the ring in, into Mount Doom, but at the storyline level, it's not like Tolkien was like in the story forcing you know, Frodo to use his hand, like Frodo had storyline levels. Frodo made, you know, within that story made that decision. Now you might say, mm -hmm. well, Frodo's not a real character. Fair enough. But it shows that that kind of different conception of what we're talking about. The example that I normally give, and I, and I give this when I talk to Molinists, right? You, you have Molinists like Tim Stratton that are like, well, well, we affirm predestination. And I push back. I, I've gotten to a point where I'm like, I don't, I don't know what a Molinist means by predestination, anything different than what I mean by determined. Right. Mm -hmm. Because at the end of the day, uh, you know, God, God, uh, on, give, even given Molinism, God has all of these different worlds that are feasible for him to create. Put a pen in the, the problems with feasibility versus logical possibility. But God has all these worlds that are feasible for him to create a feasible world. It just comes down to a set of true propositions. Right. A, a, you know, feasible world W1 is just a set of all pro of all propositions that are true in W1, right? As opposed to all propositions that are true in W2 and all propositions that are true in W3. And so if God says, I'm going to actualize world W1, that, that just is, is identical to him saying, I'm determining that the truth value in the actual world of all of these propositions is going to be true. I'm determining... The, the truth value of all of these things. This is what's going to happen in the actual world. 
as opposed to this other set of things that's going to happen in the actual world, right? Well, that's just what reform view means by decree and foreordain. It just means he's marked out this is what's going to happen in the actual world, right? So I have a really hard time understanding the difference between Molinistic predestination of where everything has a static, it, it's, you know, kind of difference from open theism on Molinism, the future isn't alethically open. Mm -hmm. right? Everything has a static and only it, given, given that God created this actual world, it cannot be a different world, right? It's alethically closed. It cannot be other than it is. Mm -hmm. It could have been had God created differently. So this isn't, this isn't a modal collapse to make these things necessary facts, but they are, but they are determined facts within the actual world. Mm -hmm. well, that that's just what reformed people mean by decree and foreordination. Mm -hmm. um, so I, yeah, so so that that I, I generally push back. I'm like I I don't I don't then know what you mean that's differently. And they're going to say, mm -hmm. oh, well, the mechanism is different because you know God God's decree is based on this middle knowledge. He knows what we would freely choose, and so our free choice is now. God's knowledge is now dependent on our free choices. Our free choices are now reverse. There's reverse dependency to God's knowledge. And I'm going to say, okay, well, the outcome, we agree on the outcome though. It's all determined in advance. It couldn't be otherwise. I now just disagree on the grounding of it. And I think that that view has stumbled into a Sadie problems, has stumbled into divine simplicity problem. It has these other problems the outworking still is at the end of the day, my choices are determined. God has determined what will be the case in the actual world. He could have determined the world where I choose the other thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think there's, I think you're pretty onto something, Tyler. Like for me, like when I think about Molinism, I'm like, it's going to run into this, like these similar problems. Like I think about like the question of like hell, um, like for me, like Calvinism and hell, like that's an issue. I don't really understand how to like make the two make sense. Like given Molinism, like, couldn't you say like, that, say that person's in hell, like could God have given them a different set of like counterfactual circumstances where they come to like accept Christ and not be in hell. And if so, like, then you run into that same exact problem and it's just, just a different view of things. So I mean, yeah, for it, me, it, like he yeah. didn't, he didn't, he didn't act to prevent it to happen either. Mm -hmm. Right. He, he actually, he actually chose the world. He, he knew that, you know, John Smith I shouldn't use that because I actually know a John Smith. He mm. knew that, you know, John Doe was going to, was going to, you know, choose hell. And having known that he decided to create the world where John Doe chose hell. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, it's, it's to me, that's the same exact problem that I'm trying to not have to deal with under a Calvinistic view too. I'm like, so yeah. Yeah. Whereas I just go back and I say, well, you know, at the end of the day, God says that, that he, he is the potter over the clay and he makes some for from some objects of mercy and some objects of wrath. And at the end of the day, that you know that it is what it is. But given everything I said about compatibilism, that doesn't mean that God, you know, th those those memes where it's like, oh, well, given compatibilism, you know, why evangelize or don't worry, unbeliever? There's nothing you could have done differently, anyways. And those those types of things, because that that what that does is it takes the Calvinistic view of providence and try to shove in incompatibilism, but that's not our view of human freedom anyways, right? You have to jive it with our actual view uh, of freedom if you're going to try to understand our view. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't have too much to add to this conversation. I think it's been great, Tyler. So any like last thoughts or things you want to say before we wrap up here? No, I, I appreciate you having me on again. Uh, to you know, I, I love talking about these things. 
I've done, uh, you know, if, if anyone goes over to, um, uh, to the YouTube channel or to the podcast or the blog, uh, especially on the blog, I have a whole um, it's a reform theology collection. It's basically every single thing I've done related to reform theology. And there's a lot of things in there on uh, Calvinism and the nature of the will and freedom and all that kind of stuff. Um, so there's, there's a lot of resources uh, over there. I'd encourage everyone to check out the Free Thinker podcast. It should be um, linked or added just like right here in the title. Um, encourage you to check out everyone to check out everything that Tyler's doing. And yeah, that's it, everyone. Thank you for joining us today. Um, really appreciate you and your time. Thank you, Tyler, for coming on and having this conversation. And yeah, that's that. So thank you, everyone, for tuning in. Hope you subscribe, leave a like, all that fun stuff. And if you value our content, um, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com. So if you're here in apologetics, um, really appreciate your support as we try to keep growing. And our goal is to have one new patron a month. So if you want to be that person, that'd be great. So that's it. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. Have a good bless. Good, uh, I try to say have a good day and God bless at the same time, but it said it came <laughs> in as good bless or whatever. So um, have a good one, everyone. God bless. We'll catch you next time.